delightful. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you guys for praying for me. All you guys were wonderful before. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 by divine providence. It happens to be what I'm teaching tonight and was what you guys were reading earlier. Uh, I don't know if that was planned or not, but thank you. Um, oh, wait, happy Memorial Day. I feel like that's important to mention as well. Uh, just a little intro about myself. My name is Cody. As you've already heard, I'm a uh, graduate of Bio University of 2015. I graduated with a degree in history, minor in biblical studies, and I started an MA in Bible exposition that I hope to continue at some point. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman history. Uh, I talk like a machine gun, so hopefully that's not a case tonight. I got 30 minutes, so we'll see. Um, and I could talk for literally hours about the Bible. Um, anyone who knows me knows this. Uh, fortunately for you guys, I only have about 30 minutes, so that's, that's going to do. Um, we're going to be talking about love tonight by divine providence. Um, and I'm going to talk about how it's the glue of the church. I'm going to talk about its, its, its definition, its essence, its nature. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, the marriage chapter. How many people, um, how many of you guys have, have uh, been married to that psalm being, or that, uh, that chapter being recited at all? Wonderful. That, that's absolutely wonderful. I'm going to expand the meaning like crazy tonight. But uh, <laughs> I know we'll see. Um, anyway, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First, a little background on this church. This was the Vegas church. Um, and yet they're, call, they're saved. They're called saints. Paul looks at this church as one of the worst churches in the New Testament, and he calls them saints, not because of man's choosing, but clearly because of God's choosing. And I think that's very significant. Um, they are saved. They're going to heaven. Nevertheless, there's a lot of problems in this church. Um, and you can see this letter as sort of the second half of a phone conversation. You ever been in the room with someone who's on the phone? And you can only hear this side. You can't hear what's on the other side of the phone call. Um, and that's how this letter reads. This whole book, it's one giant letter written to the church at Corinth by Paul. And we can sort of see that there's some issues going on. We can sort of reverse engineer the issues based on what Paul prescribes for them. And we can sort of see just, just, just how messed up this, this, this church is. The sick culture has really gotten to the church. Again, I'm a huge fan of Greco-Roman history. And I can't help but read 1 Corinthians and not see some of the cultural weirdness show up in the church. Just to give a few examples. Um, there's factions in the church. These people, they're fighting each other. You know, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollo. You guys know this. But this, this reminds me of sort of the sophists at the time. These were, these were philosophers who walked about the city and they tried to gather their own following. And sometimes they didn't even care about truth. They just wanted to win debates. And they gained a following. It's like, ooh, my guy's better than your guy. Um, and I just think some of that snuck into the church. There's a lot of sexual sin going on in 1 Corinthians. And I think that's in part because they have a giant temple at Corinth dedicated to Aphrodite, who is the Greek god of love and sex. Uh, sorry, I used the S word here. I know that's, that's a little frightening. But there are 1,000 priestesses at this temple who were also prostitutes. So you can probably figure out how their worship services went. Um, I know it's terrible. I'm, I'm, if I offend you, I apologize in advance. <laughs> But during that time, they, even, they had such a reputation, they had a word in Greek culture called Corinthiazomai, which meant to act the Corinthian, which was a euphemism for to engage in fornication um, because it was that bad of a reputation. If you called a girl a Corinthian girl, it's because she had a very loose lifestyle. This is the reputation this had. There's a dude sleeping with his stepmother at the time, First Corinthians. It's an, it's an appalling situation. And Paul comes out and says, the Romans don't even do that. It's that bad here. They're abusing grace, thinking, it's grace, we can do whatever we want. And you're like, no, that's, you missed it entirely. Um, people are, 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 eating, are eating meat sacrificed to idols, which is not inherently bad, but when you have people who are coming to the church who, who come out of some of these cults in which the tri-tip was dedicated to Zeus, and you think, 
you, you guys put that on the meat market, that's, that's bad. That's, that's significant to them. And there's, their, their conscience is messed up as a result. They're suing each other. Their, their women are ditching the, the head, traditional head coverings, causing huge issues. And there, there's, there's another issue in which some of them came out of the cult of Dionysus, which was the Greek god of, uh, of partying and wine. If you can get that picture up in a little bit. These, these guys, I think there was, there was something going on when they had their love feast, when they were doing the Lord's Supper, and they would drink themselves into full-blown drunkenness before the people could show up. And I think that's an issue too. Um, and some of them came out of the cult of Dionysus, I'm sure, in which the worshipers would drunk, drink themselves into a, a frenzy and because they wanted to unleash the animalistic instinct going on within them, they would sometimes uh, eat a live goat. And like, this church is really messed up. In fact, I have an image on the screen. That is the god Dionysus on a piece of pottery, and he is ripping a live deer over his head. I don't care what you did in college. That's too far. <laughs> Bad. Um, and they have the spiritual gifts going on too. You know, just there's tongues and prophecy, which are wonderful things at this time. But I, I, I think there's something going on there too because the Greeks, they had this idea of the Oracle of Delphi. This is a place that all the kings would go to to seek wisdom before a battle. And it was in the city of Delphi, there's this old woman who would be inhaling smoke fumes from probably some underground volcanic fissure. And she would, she would be entranced and she has message from the gods, you're south of maybe 300, probably something along those lines. And all of a sudden, the, the, the normal worshipers at Corinth say, we got that now. Yeah, you see, we see I, I, have, I have a connection to God, too. And they're like, we don't need to go to Delphi. And he's like, oh, this, I imagine the headache for Paul. And some of them are denying the resurrection because they thought the physical's bad. You know, just the physical's bad. Why in the world would Jesus come back physically? So it's just the church is a, a giant mess. And all this is just cultural garbage sneaking into the church that's just causing a huge headache for Paul. And then call, Paul is about to bring in something that is not necessarily culturally strong, and that is the Christian idea of love. And before diving into the text, I want to look at just the letter as a whole. In, uh, in ancient times, it was, it was courtesy to open up with a sort of benediction, tell the, the, the people you're receiving, I praise God for you, it's great. And uh, he opens up, and in, in, you don't have to go there, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I thank God for the grace given to you in all things. Uh, my theology professor at Biola thinks that that might have actually been a little backhanded, saying something along the lines of, I thank God for the buckets of grace dumped on you to cover all this mess. Which I think is kind of funny. Um, but then we just, we have all these issues that he's addressing throughout. And we know First, uh, first Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. Again, probably associated with weddings. And I've heard it mentioned in that context. And if you've done that, awesome. That's excellent. But I think there's a lot more to it, um, especially when we consider the surrounding material. In chapter 12, right before it, we see Paul comparing the church to a human body with sorts of many different ligaments and different functions, like an eye or, or, a, or, or a mouth or a foot. They all have different functions. They make the body functional. And they all work together gloriously. In the church body, it brings glory to God. It edifies one another so that we're loving one another. It's wonderful, but they were doing the opposite. They were taking these gifts apart from love, apart from the glue that's holding the church together, and they were using them in awful, fleshly, natural, man, sinful ways. And it's tragic, and Paul here is he's here to regulate. It's nothing like us, you know, we're a perfect church, so we need none of this stuff. Um, but I think it's really important when we look at sort of the context and we look at the end of chapter 12 where Paul had just gone on talking about these gifts and saying, yes, each of you has a function in the body of Christ, in verse 31 of chapter 12, right before chapter 13, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. These are good things. The gifts are good. 
whether that be teaching or tongues or, or, or mercy or helps or, or charity, whatever it may be. And I will show you a still more excellent way. The still more excellent way. And I think that is, and as we know from the preceding chapter, it's this whole manner of life called love. And it's the glue that holds the church together. And that's what I'm speaking about tonight. And it's so essential that he commits a whole chapter in it, sandwiched right in between chapters 12 and 14 regarding the gifts. Before we're going to talk about tongues and stuff, he's going to regulate that because they're abusing that horrifically. And we need to talk about love. And he waxes eloquent regarding love in chapter 13. It is the gift that all believers share in the body of Christ and it holds all others together. It is the purpose of all the others, of teaching and mercy to love God, to love others, and that by which all the other commandments are summed up. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the core of what we are as Christians. I found it very important. Regardless of what you bring to the table in your gifting, in your special skills that God has blessed you with, love is the glue that holds it all together. And I find that so significant, and Paul does. Then, okay, well, well what is love? To, to, to quote the great philosophers of uh, A Night at the Roxbury, um, what is love, baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Only a few are laughing, the rest of you are too young for it. Um, but our culture is dumb about the idea of love. Um, this idea, I said the D word, I'm sorry. But it's just, there, is it a feeling or is it an action? And I think we err on both sides. It's sort of like, we, we, we just sort of go to pendulum mode sometimes because some people will stress the feeling. Our culture is big on that. And you hear horrific stories of boyfriends pressuring their girlfriends to do something physical they're not, they're not comfortable with. And they'll say something like, if you love me, you'll do it. You're a monster. If, that, if that's the case, and repent of that. But then you see the, the other side of the pendulum swing, they say, oh, if, there, if there's no affection at all, it's, it's just action, it's simply action is love. And this is the view of Immanuel Kant, who was an 18th century philosopher in Europe, who thought that an action was only loving and virtuous if there was no affection at all. So it's, I can't have any fun in this. Only if it's, it's completely, I don't wanna do this, then it's virtuous, then it's truly loving. And I, I mean, I'm here to, to bring balance, this idea. And like the Corinthian culture, we let these dumb ideas from our culture infiltrate our church. And I think there's just a, a need for a little regulation. I think that's really important. Um, and my definition, and I'm completely up for correction. If I say something heretical, please stop me. Um, but I think that uh, there's a three-part definition. Love is a delighting in one another. So there's the affection part. It is a giving of oneself to another. That's the action part for their good. And I think all of those are qualified by scripture. I think it's both a feeling and an action. I believe it's both. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm very grateful for pastors who get up there against the tide of our culture saying, love does, it's an action we must do because there's too much feeling, there's too much emotion. And I'd say, yes, thank you, but, but please don't exclude the emotion, don't exclude the affection, I beg you. I think that's really important. I, I think affection is important and I think John Piper, anybody John Piper fans at all? There's a handful of you. Excellent. Um, John Piper. I, I love Piper so much. Uh, I want to name my daughter Piper one day uh, when I have her, but Benji beat me to it. Um, <laughs> but that'd be excellent. Um, but anyway, but Piper has a wonderful analogy of how the necessity of affection in our, in our acts of love. So he sort of this has the idea of if I go to my wife, if I decide, you know what, I'm going to show affection to my wife one day, and he gets a bouquet of roses, and he goes up to the door, knocks on the door and says, Noel, there is nothing I would rather do tonight. There is nothing that would bring me more satisfaction and joy than spending the evening with you. Is she going to turn around and say, you are so selfish. Oh, my goodness. You're just like, you just want what's good for you, just the affection of you. You're so selfish. You're just thinking about yourself. And it's like, 
No, she, she would be horrible. The, the affection honors her. And if, if you don't believe me, think about how the opposite. Think of this, this is if Immanuel Kant goes to the door and he shows up with his routers and he's like, oh, Immanuel, thank you so much for the... It's my duty. I don't enjoy this at all. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't want to do this. I take zero pleasure in you. Those are for you. You're a monster! It's, 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 so you see what I mean? Affection is significant. I find it very important. And it's so significant that I think Paul is actually going to stress it in the chapter that even things like charity and martyrdom with a lot of people in the unbelieving community say, well, yeah, well, we do these things too. They, they can be excluding of love. I think that's very important. I, I think the fact that... Um, and I look at this, I look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you don't have to go there, but it talks of Jesus who performed the greatest act of love in human history, giving of his life to pay for the sins of a multitude. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. And that could be joy in glorifying the Father, joy in the salvation of his people. But he had joy doing it. Yes, he struggled in the garden saying, I don't want to do this. But when he finally resolved, I'm doing this because I love my people. I adore them. And I can't be apart from them. Other characteristics of, of, the, of this biblical love, just, just, just across Scripture, I noticed that um, it requires the Holy Spirit. It, require, it truly requires salvation. Because if you look at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and you see love and joy listed as number one and two, I think that's kind of important. Because um, I'd look over that list and I'd see things like, you know, it says self-control in there. And Buddhist monks who don't have the Holy Spirit are really good at self-control. So whatever is talking, uh, Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 about this love, this fruit of the Spirit, it has to come from God. It's God forming this fruit within you. It's not you bringing it up of your own resolve. It's Him forming it in you. And I find that very important. These are a lot of the characteristics of love. This, this sort of love is something that comes from a changed, converted heart in knowing Christ. I find that very important. And one more thing, we're going to dive into the text. It's all delighting in one another. I find it very interesting when I listen to um, Christian philosophers and theologians debate Muslim uh, philosophers and theologians. It's very, very, very respectful. But one thing they notice is they go outside of Scripture. They dive in what's called uh, natural theology and axiology, which is, I know, big, scary words. But it's the study of virtue. What can we figure about? What, what, if God is the greatest being we can imagine, what is he like? And one of the big issues that I see with Christians jump on, I, I love this, is loving requires another. It requires another. So therefore, it makes sense philosophically that God would exist as a trinity throughout all time because he's been loving eternally. The God of Islam doesn't have that because he just had no one to love until creation, if he loves at all. Again, all respect to our Muslim friends. We talked about them earlier. So then diving into the text, he's going to break it down for them. And I just diving into the text, starting in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So again, there's a profit aspect. He's, he's receiving joy in this. I think it's absolutely delightful. But these are good things he's talking. He's talking about teaching and tongues. But he's saying if they're excluded from love, you're a, you're a clanging cymbal. And if you guys ever know how annoying that is, like ding, 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 ding. That's, that's you. If you, teach, if you teach apart from love. And he said, if you know all mysteries, if you know all theology, it's, it's pointless. You can be the best theology professor at the best Christian university if you do it apart from love. You're useless to God. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. And then even things like martyrdom and charity, things that are seen as, as 
intrinsically loving, Paul says, actually, no. Some of these things, there's a motive behind it that is very significant. And then he goes on to describe what love is and isn't in verses 4 through 7. And, and just, just listen to some of these ideas. And I think that all the other problems that the church of Corinth is dealing with can be easily resolved if we just, just look at the way Paul describes it. He says, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant. I think of the, the sophists who go around, they're just, they're trying to make themselves look good, they're trying to debate just to win. And you think about it, that's arrogance, that's pride. There's something profoundly wrong there. Young buck Calvinists like myself who want to just make sure make all the doctrines absolutely correct, all the theological ducks are in a row. That's not kind. You just need to approach correctly. Truth is important as well. I'll get to that in a second. Does not act unbecomingly. It's rudeness. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. You guys who are, you know, to act unbecomingly, these, these women who are just dealing with, with who, tossing traditional garb, or you guys who are, who are just, just gorging yourself and getting drunk on the Lord's Supper, that's unbecoming. That's wrong. Doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. You're suing each other. That's taking account into a wrong suffered. That's very important. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, this is verse 6, but rejoices with the truth. And the guy who's sleeping with his stepmother and denying the resurrection, that's not delighting in righteousness. That's delighting in unrighteousness. And those of you who are denying the actual resurrection that Paul is willing to base his, base his entire life upon, saying, I'm the most pathetic man who's ever existed had it not been true, saying, that's not delighting in the truth. I find that very important. Verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is very important. They're long-suffering with one another. I'm going to enjoy you. I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to give myself to you in any way that I can without compromising truth. And it's going to be for your good. I find that very significant. Love is so great. It is the one gift that will never stop. We see that in verse, uh, verses 8 and 9. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I'm not going to get into the uh, cessationist charismatic debate tonight. Um, that's, that's a can of worms that I will not get into, if you guys know what that is. But at some point, according to verse 8, the gifts do cease. Prophecy, tongues, all that stuff. And then I would just imagine if some cessationist in the back room says, Yeah, you tell them. And I was like, well, wait a minute. So is teaching. Teaching ceases as well. You know, those of us who are teachers are going to be out of the job. Sorry, Benji, Greg, and James. Um, at some point, they will. And it's the reason for the gifts, and that's a, the, the, in verse 9, it's a big four. Four, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So right now, the gifts, all, all the gifts that we need, they're significant. They're significant. They do build us up. They do, they do help us to edify one another and glorify God. But until the perfect comes, which I believe it can be textually argued, is the second coming of Christ, when we're staring at him face to face, we won't need special messages because he's right in front of us. I think that's incredible. I think that's very important. The perfect is coming. Everything in our book is true. Absolutely. God has, has chosen, we talked about this morning in our small group, is that God has, he, he does keep secrets. He has revealed things to us. The secret things are of the Lord. But things revealed are for us. He has revealed genuinely true things, but not exhaustive things. that We don't know everything about God, but what we do know is absolutely true. I love that. In verse 11 and 12, Paul's going to shift into word pictures to help us understand, because we like word pictures. Jesus recognized that, so that's why we have parables. But in verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So sort of this idea that 
When you're a kid, it's good to be a kid, but the point of a kid is not to stay as a child, it's to grow. And that's what the gifts are for. They, they get you to grow until you've reached adulthood, until you've reached maturity. And that's the purpose of the gifts that we see. And again, love is in the background of all this. It's the glue holding it all together. Verse 12, another cultural fun thing about Corinth is we find in our, the archaeological record lots of bronze mirrors everywhere. everywhere. And if you look in a bronze mirror, it's not exactly what we have today. It's kind of obscured. Um, it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly and then face to face. For I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known also. So this idea, the philosophers like to use the example of a, a bronze mirror to sort of show that, that our knowledge is imperfect and we're somehow growing into the deeper things of virtue. And we see in that mirror the same sort of idea that one day we will see Christ face to face. Right now we need the gifts to edify us, to get us to that point. So we see Christ better and better more every day until we see him face to face. But he says... When those have fulfilled their purpose, we don't need them anymore. But love will remain. And then one day you'll see your Lord face to face who purchased you with his own blood. Either when he returns or when he calls us home, you'll see your Lord face to face and he will look back at you with infinite love. Love still remains. And verse 13, and these three remain. So he's eliminating, saying all these gifts have served their purpose. Now we have three things left, faith, hope, and love. I think those are very important. Cultivate these things. And he says, the greatest of these is love. And I thought, how is love greater than the other two? And I was just meditating on this, thinking, you know, the epistles themselves mention hope and faith. I believe it's Romans 8, 24, yes, where Paul is talking about hope, and he's talking about, about just this, our, our great hope in the Lord. And he says, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees, for what he does not see? And he thought, okay, so he, evidently the nature of hope is that it's only hope if what you're hoping for is not here yet. But now that Christ has come at that point, hope has been fulfilled. And I think of faith, again, again, our, our, we live by faith and not by sight, so the nature of faith is that it, it's, we don't entirely know. We're taking, we're taking a leap of faith, it's called. We're moving out into the unknown based on what we have. And he says in, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, not necessarily Paul, but it could be, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So the nature of hope and faith, it, it, you, if you have faith in something that's right there, you don't need to exercise any sort of extreme faith. He's right there in front of you. So the nature of, of faith, hope, and love, faith and hope sort of have an end. They're just, they're, 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 they are fulfilled at some point. Yes, we have faith and hope in greater and greater things, but faith and hope in the second coming of Christ, when he's right there in front of us, it's fulfilled. But there is one thing that still remains, and that is love. I think that's, I think that's what Paul's saying. I'm totally willing to be told that I'm incorrect on that, but that's what I think is going on. And I was out for a run today, and I was thinking about this idea of love and thinking, oh boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them angry. They're not going to like this. But uh, I was thinking about how today's Memorial Day. Um, I love the flag there, very significant. But, uh, and I was just thinking about uh, a book that I had read. Actually, I listened to it on tape, but I had the book. Um, by Divine Providence, um, my dad, before he passed away last year, this was a book that was uh, mailed to him by being a member of BillOReilly.com. I know Bill O'Reilly has some issues in the news right now. I, I like him, but... Um, yeah, granted, I, I don't exclude the, I don't forgive any issues that he may or may not have, but this is Killing the Rising Sun. This is, this is a historical novel, so to speak, of the invasion, uh, of the attempted invasion of Japan, the dropping of the nuclear, of nuclear bomb. And there was a significant part in this story 
of this historical text, really, that I thought was very important to this idea of love. And I wanted to share it with you guys. It follows a story. Uh, how many of you guys saw Hacksaw Ridge? Anybody? Uh, I didn't. Uh, but I found out just a few hours ago that the story I'm about to tell you is about said man. Um, Hacksaw Ridge is the story, and this, this story is the story of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a um, Seventh-day Adventist who was serving in the Pacific, um, particularly in Okinawa in 1945, um, during the invasion there, because you had got to take Okinawa before you attempt any invasion of Japan. And one of the big significant events is up on... on Right on the shore, there's this what's called the Mayada Escarpment. It's a big cliff, as you can sort of see there, and they had to put a bunch of cargo netting up there to make sort of a, a, a rope to get a, a ladder to get up there. Because it's, it's shaped, it, it slopes down on the other side, and the Americans would charge up one side, and they'd take the hill, and the Japanese would return, and they would go down another hill, and it's just this huge game of tug-of-war going back and forth. And Desmond Doss, who is a conscientious objector, he is a pacifist. Um, I would disagree on that, uh, him on that, and you're welcome to hold that position too. Um, but he will not even carry a pistol. But um, instead of taking a job at a shipyard, he decided to be a medic with his, with his fellow Marines. And he was one of the only medics. And the Japanese like to aim for medics because it saps men's morale when the guy who's supposed to save them goes down in the middle of battle. And this excerpt that I'm about to share with you is, an ex is, is, is from eyewitness accounts of, of just a collection of eyewitness accounts from the Battle of Okinawa. And as soon as it, it, it's the Sabbath day, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, they worship on a Sabbath day. On, on Saturday, and he's reading his Bible, and he's getting there. There's a bunch of wounded men, and they're, they're getting ready to be, to be removed. And then all of a sudden, they come under attack. They have the top of the hill, and it's just fire everywhere. And here's a little excerpt from the story that I'd like to share with you, and maybe you'll, you'll see why I brought that significant. Doss's wounded leg throbs, but he remains on the summit. The company has no other medic. An American attack on a well-fortified pillbox fails, and more men fall. The dead and dying are spread out across the escarpment as the order to fall back is issued. Every able soldier retreats to safety, scrambling back down the cargo net. Left atop the cliff are Doss, a hundred wounded Americans, and the Imperial Japanese Army. Doss refuses to leave. I knew these men. They were my buddies. Some had wives and children. If they were hurt, I wanted to be there to take care of them, Doss would later write. Working tirelessly, exposed to thick gunfire and exploding shells, the private treats every one of the fallen. The wounded who can shoot provide covering fire as they await their turn to be rescued. Ignoring the searing pain in his leg, Doss grabs each of them under the shoulders or by the heels and drags them to the edge of the cliff. As a child, Desmond Doss once helped rescue victims of a flood. It was then that he had thought, taught a special knot with which he could fashion a sling using a short section of rope. The memory of that knot, something that he had not thought of for 20 years, suddenly comes back to him. Using this impromptu technique, Doss lowers man after man over the side, then rushes back across the escarpment to get another. Just one more, he says to himself over and over, just one more. Japanese soldiers take aim at Doss, but they miss. When they advance with bayonets, sometimes coming within just a few feet of the medic, wounded Americans summon the strength to shoot the Japanese soldiers dead. By nightfall, PFC Desmond Doss has single-handedly saved the lives of 75 men. I can state without reservation that the actions of this man were the most outstanding display of bravery I've ever seen, First Lieutenant Cecil Gornto will marvel. I wasn't trying to be a hero, Doss will tell a newspaper reporter much later in his life. I was thinking about it from the standpoint, in a house on fire, and a mother is a child in that house, what prompts her to go in and get that child? Love, he'll respond, answer his own question. I love my men and they love me. I just couldn't give them up, 
just like a mother couldn't give up the child. Two weeks later, on May 21st, 1945, a grenade exploded against the bottom of PFC Doss's boot. Severely injured, he bandaged his own wounds, then waited several hours while other wounded men were rescued before allowing himself to be placed on a stretcher. On the way back to the aid station, he suffered a compound fracture when hit by Japanese sniper fire. Using a rifle for a splint, Doss ignored the bone protruding from his arm and crawled to safety. Goodness, man. Doss had lost his Bible. No, excuse me. Doss spent the remainder of the war in a hospital. While there, he realized that he had lost his Bible in the thick of battle. When word got back to his unit, the soldiers conducted a thorough search of the Mayada escarpment once the battle was won. They did not stop searching until Doss's Bible was found. Doss received the Medal of Honor from President Harry Truman at a White House ceremony on October 12, 1945, the first non-combatant to receive the nation's highest military award for valor. And of course, love is a big part of that, but there was another part I was thinking about, how Jesus came down to earth. And I always think about the incarnation as, imagine you becoming an ant. You think that sounds offensive and weird? It should. Imagine yourself saying, I love those ants. I'm going to save them. I'm going to come down. I'm going to become an ant larva and go through all the horrible, sticky nastiness of that. I'm going to become a full-grown ant growing up to adulthood, and I'm going to be destroyed by them. And that's the picture of the gospel, that we become an ant, but he's borne our sins. He's borne our sins in such a way, and he's imputed his righteousness to us. And he loves you with, God loves you with the same love he has for his son. I always found it interesting where the fact that we are in Christ, the fact that we're in Christ, I think that's the significant, the smallest description of the Christian faith. And this the idea, Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian of American history, believed that the Holy Spirit was the love of God in such a way he was so much so that he was his own person. He was the love between the Father and the Son. And such that, it's interesting, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I have affection for him. I adore him. I love him. And I find it very significant now that we are in Christ, that the Holy, same Holy Spirit, the connection, the love between the Father and the Son has come down and descended upon us permanently and has evoked this love in us for one another. I find that significant. That because we are in Christ is nothing. And in the same way Desmond Doss received a medal from President Truman, and as Pastor Benji liked to mention, I believe it's Sinclair Ferguson, that because we have Christ's imputed righteousness, it's as if all the armies of heaven salute you after receiving Christ's own medals pinned to your chest. I thought that was powerful. This love transcends all the garbage of the Corinthian culture. It transcends all the garbage of our own, and it lasts into eternity. It was what the Corinthian troops were lacking and they needed to be bought on, back on track for. Every gift they had was made useless, but with it, it was made infinitely powerful for the glory of God and the good of fellow man. And the church must be a place of love and truth, and this love is available to everyone. The Bible's view of love is much more beautiful than anything our culture can deliver. And that's all I have for you guys tonight. So. Pray with me real quick. Father God, thank you for the honor and privilege of being able to teach everyone here. I pray that someone takes something away from this deep into eternity, Lord, and years from now they will be affected. They might even remember me, but they'll remember something spoken here, something powerful. Thank you, Lord, for the honor of being able to serve your church. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness and grace and love. And Holy Spirit, help us to love one another from now and into eternity. Thank you, Lord.
Jesus' name.